For our meditation this morning, would you turn with me to the passage we read in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1, and particularly verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. I think it's true to say that the faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth has a struggle in every generation. All sorts of problems may beset the visible church. We see that in the case of the Corinthian church in this first chapter. Paul is addressing issues that there are in the church and such issues must be addressed. This epistle is a case in point. Paul addresses various, various potentially destructive aspects of the life and doctrine of the church there in Corinth. And it, it reminds us that a church is responsible, whether you think of it in terms of a local congregation or a wider, in a wider sense, a church is responsible for maintaining the whole counsel of God with vigour and with consistency. And that means that that must be a concern for all who are part of the church, that there is a responsibility upon each member to be vigorous and consistent in living by the word of the Lord for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that is not the case, there is a calling back to faithfulness. At the heart of all is the question of power. Power. What power advances the life of God in the soul? What power advances the, the work of the church in the world? And at the heart of the Christian faith is a message. We have a message from God for us. And it is a message about a death. And, in, and it is in connection with that message that the power of God is experienced in the world. And this is something writ large in the New Testament. And it's here in our text. For the message of the cross... For the preaching of the cross, or the message of the cross, is foolishness to them that per perish, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And that preaching is centred, to be centred, upon the cross. This is something indicated by Paul here also in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, 
and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. As one theologian put it, the doctrine of atonement is put in its proper light only when it is regarded as the central truth of Christianity and the great theme of Scripture. And it is that message, that message, that God's power accompanies. I'd like us to consider this verse then. Two things this afternoon. The first thing is this. There are two conditions of people described. Very straightforward. There are those who are perishing as they are without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are those who are saved or literally being saved. Consider the saved. We use the word saved in relation to people becoming Christians. We speak of being saved. Well, negatively, we can speak of being saved as being delivered from danger. For example, a lifeboat recovering people whose boat has sunk or plane has ditched in the sea. They are saved. They're delivered. They're delivered from a danger. We're told that when the Titanic sank in 1912, information was available to those at home uh, of those who survived and those who perished. And there was a list put up and there were two, two, two columns. One had saved and the other had lost. Now, in relation to our never-dying souls, my dear friends, being delivered from the danger and consequences of sin, not least the reality of hell, in relation to this, souls being delivered from the danger and consequences of sin, there is this wonderful truth of souls being saved through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the sacrifice of the Lord, through the sacrifice of the cross, securing forgiveness, securing forgiveness and acceptance of the sinner with God the Father for all who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, of course, is accompanied by an inward transforming power of the Holy Spirit in the soul. On the one hand, then, there is the condition, this condition of being saved. Now, it's not quite the same as being converted. Being converted usually refers to that point, or it may seem to be a, seem to be a more gradual experience, by which you have a complete change of direction in the matter of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We often relate conversion to an experience in the sinner of regeneration the Holy Spirit regenerating there will be in connection with this repentance towards God faith in the Lord Jesus Christ sorrow for sin to a greater or lesser depth and the soul coming to trust in Christ for salvation through him there is forgiveness of sin as he is received by faith and in biblical terms, this is not a matter of man's work, but Christ's work for the sinner. 
and by the Holy Spirit's work within the sinner. They become new creatures in Christ Jesus. They now have a new master. Once they followed the ways of the world, but now they have a new master and a new direction in their lives. And all this by virtue of his dealing with the issue of sin through the death of the cross as a sacrifice for sin. By that sacrifice, he turns away the wrath of God from the believing soul by taking it upon Christ, by taking it upon himself on their behalf. Not only that, there is also the matter of his perfect righteousness. He being without sin, his perfect righteousness, imputed or made over to the sinner. Made over to them as theirs. This is a wonder of justification. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. But this question of salvation is just not, a, is not just a one-off experience. The Holy Spirit is given to the believer so that they may work out their salvation. They may work it out in their lives. Work it through, as it were, and live a life consistent with being saved by being a transformed and changed person who has come to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. There is not only a work you see for the sinner, but also ongoing in the sinner. In that work, the sinner will be involved so that they show the character of the saved man or woman. They love the Lord. They love the word of the Lord. They love the law of the Lord. They love the Sabbath. They love the Sabbath day ministry. They love the prayer life of the church. They love the ordinances. They love the ordinance of the Lord's Supper that speaks to them of that through which their salvation has been secured. The sacrifice of Christ on behalf of his own. They love the people of God. And more than this, they hate sin. They seek to die to it. There should therefore be no continuing in sin, but hatred of it and dying to it. It used to be called the mortification of indwelling sin, which is to be a concern for the saved soul as they desire to have a likeness of Christ in their lives. This is part of being saved. And in truth, this is the most important thing in the world. Being saved by Christ is the most important thing in the world. Because if this is not the sinner's position and condition in this life, they will be among the other group mentioned here. If there is this persistence through life, of considering Christ and the gospel as foolishness. So consider briefly the perishing. This, if you like, is the darker side of reality in this world and in the next. Those who are not saved, those who do not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour, who never come to that place of repentance before God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
How are they described? They're described as perishing, and they will perish eternally unless they come <coughs> and turn to the Lord and repent of their sin and believe and follow him. And for them, there is nothing but the fearful expectation of judgment. There's a sense in which we can say, humanly speaking, it doesn't bear thinking about. It doesn't bear thinking about. And it is no kindness to minimize uh, this aspect of reality in this world. People must be challenged about their position. And it must be made perfectly clear who is in which of these categories. People are perishing who have no care for Christ, who have no thought for sin and its consequences or what Christ has accomplished through the cross. These are souls who do not see the gravity of sin or its potential consequences in terms of a lost eternity, in terms of being cast away from God and from mercy forever. Now this isn't a case of just some question of some particularly scandalous sin, because the Bible teaches that all have sinned, and Adam, they've sinned in Adam and in practice. And it teaches us that the soul that sins shall die. And it teaches us the wages of sin is death. That is to say eternal death. It teaches that sin must be punished. And that it will either be punished on yourself or on a substitute. An adequate and satisfactory substitute. We shouldn't think that sin is only serious insofar as it is exposed in the tabloids or read about in the tabloids, the big sins. We have to remember the most grievous of sins are sins of unbelief, sins of the heart, which may involve indifference to God and the message of the Bible. It's not just prisoners on a life sentence who are perishing. By nature, all sinners are not only on a life sentence, but on death row, unless somebody should somehow provide a way of escape, a way of pardon. But this brings us to the message. This is the second thing. There is one means by which deliverance from sin is accomplished. So we are faced with the possibility, all men everywhere, all people everywhere are faced with the possibility of perishing in their sins. The question is, what are the means or what is the means by which such an eventuality may be avoided for any, may be avoided in a way acceptable to God in his holiness, in his justice, and in his truth. And this is where we come to the message Paul speaks of here. Paul lays it out in the text. Those being saved, those who are being saved, see something very special in the message of the cross. To them, the message is very special. Why? Well, on account of who is involved and what it involved for him and what it accomplishes by the power of God. Paul has already referred to the cross as the cross of Christ. We have this in verse 17. We cry... Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 
He goes on to speak about the content of his message. In verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the crucifixion has to do with how there is deliverance, how there is salvation for poor sinners such as we are. They're to do with providing the means acceptable to God for the deliverance of sinners, for the justification of sinners, how he could be just and the justifier of those who come to believe in Jesus, who come to believe in Jesus as saviour and as sin-bearer. Who can bear the punishment for sin effectively? Can you bear the punishment for sin effectively for yourself or for others? No, you can't. You can't. A sinner can't even provide satisfaction for his own sins. Satisfaction to the divine justice for his own sins, far less the sins of others. Who could pay the price, the satisfactory price, that sinners like we can be delivered from the wrath that is to come? A sinless man? Where is a sinless man? Where is a sinless man? We point to the sinless man. Emmanuel is the sinless man. The God-man. God in our nature without sin. That is the only way. Christ, the sinless Son of God, the second person of the glorious Trinity, God of very God in our nature, and without sin, he alone could bear the punishment that we, such as we are, deserve. He endured the punishment for sin, principally on the cross. He endured the wrath of God against sin. He propitiated that wrath. He endured soul sufferings. He endured mental anguish, besides physical pain. For himself? No, not for himself. For others, yes, for others, for those given him by the Father from all eternity, for those who come in time to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and put their trust in him, for those who respond to this message of the cross, recognizing that they are undone in themselves and they need a satisfactory sacrifice which can be acceptable to God, that they could never give themselves. How do we know that it was successful? What Jesus did on the cross, that he accomplished salvation for an innumerable multitude that no man can number. For sinners of mankind who come to put their trust in him and in the sufficiency of his death for them. How do we know it was successful? Well, he rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is there now. He is intercessor. He is at the right hand of God, ever living to intercede for his own. So this message is the power of God. 
For it is a message by which the blessing of God produces and always will produce transforming results. That message of the cross is the habitation of his power. Some have called it his chariot. It speaks of the divine appointment by which an adequate price has been paid for the release of prisoners on death row. For believers, Christ the God-man has paid the price. He has suffered the penalty for sin and he invites them to come under the shelter of his blood and righteousness. The wonder of it all is this. The believer can say there is no believer who is deserving or worthy. The believer can say he loved me and gave himself for me. What love was demonstrated on the cross that there should be salvation for any of the sinful sons of Adam such as you and I here today. He loved me and gave himself for me. As we have it in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Eternity will not exhaust the praise of the people of God. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. There on the cross, this Prince of Glory died. The just for the unjust to bring us to God, to reconcile us to a holy God. We are reconciled to God. How? Through the death of his Son. We read in Isaiah, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To the believer, preciously, to the believer, the message of the preaching is the power of God. The message of the cross, the preaching of the cross is the power of God. The power here is the power of God displayed in converting and regenerating men and women where the cross is preached as the basis of acceptance with God, as the basis of reconciliation with God. Believers rest their confidence on the cross. They recognize in the cross that there they will find peace with God through the death of the cross. They rest their confidence on the cross because it is the sacrifice of the sin-bearer, the God-man, and it cleanseth us from all sin. The gospel then has this central message of a cross that seemed to be a cross of shame, but a cross with healing power is the power of God to those who are being saved. We rest 
upon the cross. And all this is accomplished. That is the means by which there is acceptance for any sinner with God. A word about those who are without saving faith in Jesus. As for the man or woman or young person who has never yet come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the cross? Well, to the unsaved, it is foolishness. It is foolishness. No account. It is not meaningful for their lives. And if they continue that way, what will that mean for them? Well, they are on the road to hell. They are on the road to hell. <coughs> that is the reality. <coughs> called by, by Jesus, the road upon which such are, and from which they are called from, is described as the broad road leading to destruction, leading to perishing. A permanent perishing, a permanent abode of those who die Christless and therefore perish in their sins. But from this dread condition, the message of the cross delivers as it points to the Saviour, as it points to the Saviour who has provided through his own death the basis of acceptance with the Father. Not man's works, but Christ's work upon the cross. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, the message of the cross is to them that perish, foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. In a sense, you see, the cross divides. Reaction to the cross will reveal one thing or the other, being saved or perishing. Sinners of mankind are in one or other of these categories. And it matters not where any majority may be. If Christ and his means of dealing with sin are not central in your life, in your faith, in your hope, well, something else is. And if the latter, you are in the process of perishing and are called to heed the message of the cross that speaks of sin and judgment and calls sinners to trust in that sacrifice alone, that satisfaction alone of the divine justice and law. One writer challenged, it is only when you get to the end of every attempt to, to do anything without Christ, Jesus Christ, when you lay aside your ambitions, crucify your prejudices, die to your so-called intellectual approach, and humble your pride, that you can look up into his lovely face and say, Lord Jesus, I live, yet not I. Beloved, this is the heart of vital personal religion. Little wonder that Paul claims, exclaims at the end of the letter, this letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 and 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Victory through the Lord. Victory through the cross. 
victory through that satisfaction that he made of all the demands of the divine law, the Father's law and justice. But if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. O Lord, come for those who trust in Christ. Yes, the message of the cross is the power of God. Jesus saves. His work on the cross suffices for those who believe. And it is this message of the cross which we observe as we move to the administration of the Lord's Supper and remember his death till he come. Remember his sacrifice for sin which is central for the acceptance of the sinner in this world. And the vital thing is that we are found amongst those who are looking to Christ, trusting in Christ, relying on Christ, resting upon the Beloved. And may he bless these thoughts upon his word. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, we are thankful for the message, the preaching of the cross. We are thankful for what the cross accomplished in satisfying the demands of thy justice, in Christ submitting to the sacrifice and death of the cross in order to atone for sinners, in order to provide that satisfactory basis for acceptance with thee. O oh Lord, the wonder of it, the love demonstrated through it. O oh Lord, that it would ravish our hearts and that Christ himself would be uppermost in all our thoughts as we consider his death till he come. Gracious Lord, give thy blessing upon us as we continue in our service that he might be honoured in all. We ask for his sake and in his name. Amen. Let us sing now in Psalm number 116 and verses 5 to 8, singing in Gaelic, verses 5 to 8. Psalm 116, <coughs> verses 5 to 8. God merciful and righteous is. Yea, gracious is our Lord. God saves the meek, I was brought low, he did me help afford. O thou my soul, do thou return unto thy quiet rest. For largely lo, the Lord to thee his bounty hath expressed. For my distressed soul from death delivered was by thee. Thou didst my mourning eyes from tears, my feet from falling free. These verses in Gaelic to the praise of the Lord. Psalm 116, verse 5. <coughs>
come to that part of the service which is described as the fencing of the Lord's table. Distinctions are made in the fencing of the Lord's table, essentially between the saved and the lost. But beloved, we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And by these tangible symbols of the bread and wine, we represent the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. The table is the Lord's table, but it is a, a table of communion also, a communion with the Lord and, in a sense, with one another, professing souls. It follows, therefore, that those who gather around the table should be the Lord's people. It isn't man's table. There is a sense in which it's not the church's table either, in a real sense, but it is the Lord's. And for that reason, the church must take care in its administration, because it is his, as indeed all the ordinances are. But it is for Christian believers, and before ever a soul comes to the table, they should have examined themselves, that they come in the right disposition and spirit, and particularly believing, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and resting upon him alone for salvation. And that is the purpose of the preparatory services. Happily, preparatory services are still observed in our church, and it is to that end that men and women and young people should be under no illusion as to what is happening at the communion. So what is required of those who come? Coming to the Lord's table is not determined by personal feelings of worthiness <coughs> or a given degree of sanctification insofar as we could measure that. If, if people had to feel worthy, well, the question would be who would come? Which of us would feel worthy to partake of this ordinance? But the worthiness in question, let us always bear in mind as we come to the Lord's table, is the worthiness of another. It is the worthiness of Christ which is to be the focus. And if you've been brought, as you profess to have been brought, those of you who sit at the table or will sit at the table, <coughs> if you have been brought to see the meaning of his death as a substitute for sinners, and you have come by faith to love him and to trust him, albeit you may feel falteringly, then you should be at his table. Yes, there will be sorrow for sin. There will be very often tears at the Lord's table. But there will be love to Christ. And any tears that there are will be tears that focus on what he has done and how he could do this for you and how he could be so merciful to you as to bring you to a happy union with the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be love to Christ. There will be a desire to keep his word. But there will also be a love for the brethren. Let us remember that and those who are sitting around you are joining in a communion. There is a love for one another that is to be evident and to be real in the table. 
you have these things? Then come and welcome. I don't say, are you strongly and deeply assured of them? You may or may not be. You may have fears and doubts. It would be unusual for you not to have fears or doubts. Your faith and hope might seem to be quite dim indeed. But remember, this is a strengthening ordinance. The Lord is accommodating these outward symbols to something very precious. And however weak your faith may seem to be, the table is for you. Horatius Bonner said in one place, it matters not how poor or weak our faith may be, if it touches the perfect one, all is well. And they said elsewhere, an earthenware pitcher can convey water to the traveller's thirsty lips as well as one of gold. So when we fence the table, we make a difference. It's a serious thing not to be saved and to come to the table. But let it be said that it's also a serious thing for a true-hearted Christian believer not to come to the table when the ordinance is observed, because that would be a denial of the Lord, who after all commanded, <coughs> commanded, this do in remembrance of me. In our directory for public worship, included in our church's standards, we read this. The sacrament is a singular medicine for all poor sick creatures, a comfortable help to weak souls. Yet, as the 19th century Scottish divine George Smeaton put it, how can men expect to see the going of the King Jesus in ordinances if they do not bring the presence of the King along with them? Those who are not saved by the Lord professing to be saved by the Lord, should not come. Those who know and truly love the Lord as Saviour and the chief among 10,000 should come and welcome to his table. We read some verses of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, what are usually described as the Beatitudes, focusing our minds on, this, on, on blessedness, the blessedness of the saints. Seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was set, when he sat down, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Let us sing now some verses in Psalm 118 as the elements are brought and placed on the table. We'll sing as many verses as are necessary till the elements are on the table from verse 19, singing in English, from verse 19 
of Psalm 118. O set ye open unto me the gates of righteousness, then will I enter into them, and I the Lord will bless. This is the gate of God, by it the just shall enter in. Thee will I praise, for thou me heardst, and hast my safety in we we'll sing as many verses from verse 19 as necessary until the elements are placed by the elders on the table. O oh, set ye open unto me the gates of righteousness. continue to sing verses in Psalm 118 from verse 26 on. So any members at the back, please, uh, with, with, um, with, good, with good speed, come down to the table. Blessed is he in God's great name that cometh us to save, we from the house which to the Lord pertains, 
you blessed have. From verse 26. Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink mm. of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This is the warrant for our ordinance, and according to the practice of the Lord, the same night in which he betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks, let us give thanks to the Lord for the ordinance. Our gracious God, we thank Thee for 
the ordinances of the gospel. We thank thee that thou hast not left us to ourselves to grope around in darkness or blindness, but thou hast revealed thyself. Thou hast revealed these ordinances. Thou hast appointed them, ordained them for our good. And we thank thee, Lord, for this, that we have this ordinance of the Lord's Supper and pray that thy blessing would be upon it as we observe it here this afternoon. Grant us grace to recognize in the ordinance something that speaks to us of the death of Christ, of the blood of Jesus Christ, thy Son, which cleanseth us from all sin, of that broken body on the cross by which satisfaction was made of the demands of thy law and justice. We thank thee for the atonement which the bread and wine represents of the death of Christ for sinners. O Lord our God, we thank thee. We thank thee for the Holy Spirit sent and pray for the Holy Spirit to be amongst us, recognizing the fulfillment of the promise, I am with you to the end of the age, that Christ indeed is with us here at the table. And we pray, Lord, that we will be very conscious of this as we proceed to observe the sacrament this afternoon, that Christ is present with us in his table. So we call upon thee, Lord, that thou wouldst be gracious to us, that thou wouldst come over our provocations, that thou wouldst forgive us our sins, that thou wouldst give us a right spirit of responsiveness and receptiveness to the ordinances and to all the ordinances of the gospel, so that Jesus might be uplifted in our midst and glorified. So look upon us in mercy, we pray. Bless this ordinance to us and forgive us all our sin. For Jesus' sake and in his precious name. Amen. Now before we proceed to um, before we proceed to to the um, administration of the sacrament, just a word. Now, in, in, in the Gospels, we have many invitations. All sorts of invitations are given to sinners. And there's a passage in Matthew chapter 11, which focuses on this, verses 28 to 30. Consider verse 20. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me, all ye who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We are invited to come to Jesus around this table. No doubt this particular verse or passage has an application to <coughs> unbelievers, but it surely has an application to believers as well, who are constantly invited by Christ to come to him and to follow him. And the, 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 the beauty of this is that, that here we are around his table, and it is his invitation that we are here. And there is an expectation of his presence for the blessing of our souls. Now, it may be the reality is that 
we come to this table, as we read here, <coughs> with labor and being heavy laden, laboring and heavy laden. We become very conscious of sinfulness in our lives, unworthiness, deep unworthiness, when we think of the beauty and perfection of Christ. But Christ says to us, he says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He says furthermore, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So we feel unworthy, but the Lord Jesus himself speaks through the sacrament that we, we who are laboring and heavy laden would nonetheless come to him and find in him rest, rest for our souls. After all, he is with his people. He is with us at the table here. The Holy Spirit is present. And he says, I will give you rest. He actively desires our spiritual good as we wait upon him. And we recognize when we break the bread and when we sip the wine that these represent to us something of his love in his death for such as you and me. It is wonderful to think that here we are invited, invited to his table to remember his death to become, to remember that basis by which we have acceptance with him. It is a wonderful reality. This is the beauty of the Lord's table. We say, I am laboring and heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. What can we say but come, Lord, stir our hearts to a renewed love and faithfulness for thyself as we sit at this table and as we partake of these elements that speak of thy death till thou dost come. The same night in which he, he was betrayed, he took bread and when he gave him thanks, break it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my, in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye will show the Lord's death till he come.
Jesus invites, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus instructs as well, as we leave the table, consider these verses 29 and 30 of Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek or gentle and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So with this word, let us rise from the table of the Lord. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. As we leave the table, let us have a concern to bear, as it were, this, this uh, yoke of Christ, which is easy and light. What is this? What is this yoke of Christ? Well, spiritually speaking, it means be faithful to him. Be faithful witnesses. It means listening to him, following him, reflecting him in your life by word and by deed. Does that put a weight of responsibility upon us which is too hard to bear? Well, surely not, because he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. My dear friends, he knows you. <coughs> he knows your frailty, <coughs> faults and failings. He knows your frame, that you are dust. He knows this. And he doesn't lay anything upon us that we cannot bear, that he does not give grace for us to bear. Because Christ is not a harsh master. He is not a harsh master. He is long-suffering. He is patient. And he is a wonderful teacher. He sends the Spirit, the Spirit of God as comforter. He sends the Spirit of God as enabler. He knows exhaustively and his grace is sufficient for your life in all your circumstances. <coughs> and he does what he says. What does he say? Ye shall find rest unto your souls as you are found resting in him, resting upon your beloved, and going from this place with a resolve and determination and concern to represent him in the world, to represent him in the world whom you have remembered around this table, remembered as the one who loved you and gave himself for you. For it was for such as you that his body was broken and his blood shed. And therefore, it stands to, to reason that we should go out with a desire to reflect him and to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives his people rest, not the rest of indolence, not the rest of indolence, nor a freedom from sorrow or struggle against the world and against the flesh and the devil. But he gives rest so far as our standing is concerned before God. And so as you leave the table, 
keep close to him. Observe the secret place of prayer constantly, growing in the knowledge of Jesus, listening to his word, heeding it, following him, following him, following his word, and you will receive great grace, grace to counter anxieties and grace uh, to deliver you from any paralysis of unworthiness that you may feel. Take his yoke upon you and learn of him. Let us be pupils at the school of the Lord Jesus Christ as we bear faithful witness, faithful witness to him, faithful testimony to the gospel and to his matchless person and grace. Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And the Lord bless these thoughts, and as we rise from the table, let us do so, singing in Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And we'll sing in Gaelic from the beginning to verse 3. <coughs> Psalm 103, <coughs> singing in Gaelic from the beginning down to verse 3. For thou, my soul, bless God the Lord, and all that in me is, be stirred up his holy name to magnify and bless. Bless, O my soul, the Lord thy God, and not forgetful be of all his gracious benefits. He hath bestowed <coughs> and all thy iniquities who doth most graciously forgive. And who thy diseases, who thy diseases all in pains doth heal, and thee relieve. Singing in Gaelic from Psalm 103, first three verses. <coughs>
our gracious and eternal God and Father in heaven, grant thy grace to us as we leave thy table, that, Lord, we would go forth with the determination to serve thee more consistently and godly in this present world. We are thankful for Christ. We are thankful for all he is in himself, the God-man. We thank thee for all that he has done in his sufferings and death, which have been represented in the suffering of the Lord, in the elements. We thank thee, Lord, for these reminders of the centrality of the cross. We pray that our, that our glorying will be in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to us and we to the world. We thank thee for Christ, that he is coming again, and that there is coming a day when there will be no such ordinances. When he comes again, Lord, we pray that thou wouldst bring this home to us, the pointer to his coming again, observing this sacrament till he come. Hasten that coming, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come amongst us in thy gracious presence and power. Enable us, O Lord, to serve thee uprightly and effectively in these dark days in which it pleases thee that we should live. And grant, Lord, to bless unto us what has been done through word and sacrament here today and in other places also. O Lord, that Christ would ever be uplifted, honoured and glorified by us and in our midst. Be with us then as we continue before thee. Forgive us all sin and grant thy blessing to us richly. In Christ's name and for his precious sake. Amen. <clears throat> Let us sing in conclusion, as we have it in Psalm 72, singing in English, the last three verses, three stanzas from verse 17 to 19, Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is named, Forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, and blessed all nations shall it call. Now blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, for he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity, the whole earth that his glory fill. <coughs> Amen. So let it be. These verses of Psalm 72, his name forever shall endure. This name forever shall endure
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
the message. Watch out through the hole. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Oh, but there you go. Oh, good.
Oh, yeah, that's good. 